Welcome to the Final Choice Podcast, a series created to help people get more informed about assisted dying and the End of Life Choice Act. I'm journalist and author of the Final Choice book, Carolise Trays. In my book, I interviewed more than 20 experts from across New Zealand and the globe, along with a number of those with disabilities and terminal illnesses. Through this podcast series, I'll take you on some of the journey in exploring if assisted dying is the answer to end-of-life suffering. The series includes excerpts of interviews from the Final Choice book, read by broadcaster Trudy Nelson. Welcome to Episode 7, International Evidence, with excerpts from Jane Silloway-Smith. There's no denying comparing statistics or international evidence is tricky. They can be tweaked and twisted, and often are in this very discussion. I've heard statements by End of Life Choice Act supporters like, this is the safest law of its kind in the world. And no law has been broken internationally, as well as no equivalent law has ever been changed. These are some big claims, ones that are worth checking out. I've also heard interviews with doctors from the same country, sitting totally on opposite sides, one saying the law is working perfectly, and the other saying the impact has been negative. But the fact remains, if we are to analyse and predict how this law works, it's essential we look at places that have it in practice. So to start with, we need to know there's no two laws out there that are identical, There's some that have similarities in terms of eligibility criteria, but then there's major differences in other parts of the law and application. Around 18 jurisdictions have legalised a form of assisted dying. Most of those are found within the United States, and more than 33 have rejected a similar law. Again, many are found in the United States. The most well-known jurisdictions which have embraced the law change are the Netherlands, Belgium, Canada, Oregon, and the most recent, Victoria State in Australia. So these jurisdictions are ones I look at and consider what the individual law that is operating looks like. Are there any records of law being broken? Who is using assisted dying overseas and are the laws changing? There are some important results worth noting. Researcher Jane Silloway-Smith, who has been studying international laws for more than 10 years, gives me insight and information. Chapter 16. Jane Silloway-Smith. Assisted dying laws in Canada gained momentum in 2015 after their Supreme Court in the Carter v. Canada case ruled that prohibition on assisted suicide was overly broad and it unduly abridged people's rights. The case was made by two women suffering from degenerative diseases who wanted access to assisted suicide, that the law that prohibited euthanasia was unconstitutional. It was a similar case as that of Lucretia Seals, Jane says. The court struck down the prohibition and gave the Canadian Parliament a year to draft a new law to govern an assisted dying regime. In 2016, the Canadian Parliament legalised what they call Medical Assistance in Dying, or MAID. To access it, a person must be at least 18 years old, have a serious and incurable disease or disability, be in an advanced state of irreversible decline, be enduring physical and psychological suffering which is intolerable, and have their natural death be reasonably foreseeable. 
The law was rushed in because of the deadline, Jane says. To add to the chaos, they had elections and a change in government part of the way through the law-forming process. While Parliament had the power to pass the new law, it was left to the several provinces and their health bodies, medical colleges and hospital networks to figure out exactly how it was going to work. There were many Canadian news articles from that time detailing how disruptive and complicated the process was for the medical profession, Jane says. There was a scramble. Hospitals, hospices and doctors had to decide if they were going to do it and how. From an administrator's perspective, it was a nightmare. It's like being told that how you do medicine is going to change tomorrow. It was extremely complicated. She says doctors could opt in to take part, and many did at first. But after performing one euthanasia, a significant number of doctors asked to have their names removed from the lists. A lot of doctors said they found it extraordinarily distressing. That's not surprising to Jane, who says the practice of euthanasia isn't that different from being involved in applying the death penalty by lethal injection. It's the same process. You put a wrap around their arm, you place them in a coma, and then you give them lethal drugs to stop their heart and their breathing. The drugs are often the same too. In applying the death penalty, however, the state doesn't put the onus of ending another person's life on just one doctor the way it does with euthanasia. The psychology of ending another person's life is fraught. Firing squads have several people with guns, only one of which is loaded with real bullets, so no one knows who really killed the person. They do this to provide emotional relief to the executioners. I wondered whether Jane was adding a touch of American drama to her research, so I looked into it. In 2017, Canadian newspaper The National Post reported that a number of doctors in Canada who had helped end lives were no longer willing to participate in assisted death because of emotional distress or fear of prosecution. In Ontario, one of the few provinces to track the information, 24 doctors were permanently removed from a voluntary referral list of physicians willing to help people die. Another 30 have put their names on temporary hold, according to a health ministry spokesman. That left 137 doctors on the list willing to provide it, and 30 of those doctors would only provide a second patient assessment, not administer the injection. Other interesting results appeared. After the first nine months from when the law was introduced, in the Quebec region there were 262 euthanasia deaths, three times more than predicted, and of those, 21 cases were found to be non-compliant. Most of those cases breached the requirement of two doctors assessing the patient, as the doctors were considered not sufficiently independent. Two other patients who had been given euthanasia were not at the end of life, while a third didn't have a serious or incurable condition. None of the doctors involved faced the discipline committee. So some drama seemed to be legitimate. Moving on to neighbour nation America, more than nine states have adopted laws allowing for assisted suicide, not euthanasia. Those include Oregon, Washington, Washington DC, California, Colorado, Hawaii, Maine, New Jersey and Vermont. Interestingly, more than 26 states have rejected it. Requirements include that patients must be 18 or over, competent and terminally ill with a prognosis of six months or less. They must request the prescription from a doctor multiple times, both in writing and orally, with a cooling off period of 15 days between requests. They must have a second opinion and may require a psychiatrist report. The drugs must be self-administered. Doctors who object offering assisted suicide don't have to refer their patients to someone who will do it. Once you've received the prescription drugs from the pharmacy, there are no conditions on how, when or where you can take them, other than that it can't be done in a public place. Recording details surrounding the death is not mandatory.
Jane says this means there are people living with lethal drugs just sitting in their medicine cabinet. No one has to be there when the person takes them or dies. It really is a terrifying regime they have, because often no one is present. You don't know whether the patient ingested the drugs themselves or by accident, or if they suffered complications, or whether someone else was involved in administering the drugs. Oregon and Washington have the best statistics available from the legalised states, as they've had it operating for the longest time. Oregon passed the law in 1997, and it was operational from 1998. Since it was first introduced, there has only been one amendment to the law in Oregon, and that was to the cooling down period of 15 days they have legislated. Note that we do not have any cooling off period condition in the New Zealand bill. Jane says while the law hasn't changed on paper, the practice has. At first, mostly cancer patients and a few with terminal heart conditions requested it, but over the last 12 years there's been a steady increase in numbers of those with chronic conditions wanting it, like those with diabetes, Parkinson's, neurological conditions, stuff that isn't necessarily terminal if people choose to have treatment. The reasons for people choosing to use it is also very different to the original assumption that pain would be a motivational factor. In 2019, 90% of people in Oregon who requested assisted suicide did so because they didn't find life enjoyable. 59% said they were requesting it because they were worried about being a burden on their families and caregivers. Pain, or even just the fear of future pain, was only mentioned by 33% of people as a reason for wanting to die. In Oregon, a huge proportion of doctors refused to prescribe lethal drugs, which means that 112 physicians wrote 290 prescriptions for lethal drugs in 2019. At least one doctor wrote 33 prescriptions that year, and the median length the doctor has known the patient is 14 weeks, with some doctors only knowing their patient for as little as one week. In the early 2000s, both the Netherlands and Belgium made positive law to codify the practice of assisted dying in their respective countries. The Netherlands Physician-Assisted Dying Law was introduced in 2002 after being practiced for decades. Both euthanasia and assisted suicide are available for those experiencing unbearable suffering. The Netherlands Physician-Assisted Dying Law was introduced in 2002 after being practiced for decades. Both euthanasia and assisted dying are available for those experiencing unbearable suffering without the prospect of improvement. There is no requirement to be terminally ill, nor is there any mandatory waiting period. A voluntary and well-considered request must be made, and the patient must be fully informed and aware of their condition and options. A second opinion is needed, and the euthanasia must be reported to one of the regional review committees. Minors between 16 and 18 years of age can request euthanasia after consulting with their parents or guardians but they do not need their permission. Children between 12 and 16 must have parental or guardian permission. A new provision within this law allows euthanasia to be performed on a patient who has previously made a written request for death, even if, in their incapacitated state, they now claim they don't wish to die. Jane pulls out a 2016 review. The committee had found 11 cases involving non-compliance with the law. In six of those cases, the doctors did not comply with the criterion of due medical care. In three cases, doctors did not properly consult with at least one other independent physician. In six of those cases, the doctor did not comply with the criterion of due medical care. In three cases, doctors did not properly consult with at least one other independent physician. In one case, a doctor disregarded judgments of a psychiatrist and performed euthanasia on a patient who was depressed and had reasonable options for effective treatment available. 
and in another case, a doctor performed involuntary euthanasia on an incompetent patient who insisted she did not want to die. Next door, the Belgian law was introduced in 2002 for anyone 18 or older suffering from constant and unbearable physical or mental suffering that cannot be alleviated. There was never any terminal illness or foreseeable death requirement. In 2014, the law was amended to remove the age restriction, making it the most liberal law in the world. Children can now use it with a parent's permission. I've spoken to many, many politicians over the years, some personally and some in small groups, she says. Those who are for euthanasia always fell into one of three categories. They had a personal experience with someone dying and they didn't like it. They have a fear of losing their abilities and dying in pain and suffering themselves. Or they think they'll never want to be euthanized, but they can't deny someone who wants to use it. These are real fears, but they're not good grounds for making sweeping, complicated and dangerous laws. Jane leaves us with a lot to consider. One of the biggest surprises for me was the reason why people are choosing assisted dying overseas. The most common motivational reason, because the patient was less able to engage in activities making life enjoyable. I also was left with questions around how there were doctors breaking the law every year in a number of jurisdictions, yet going unpunished. And since interviewing Jane, I've looked into the Victoria state law, which has just ticked past its first anniversary. Our law has often been held up in comparison to this one, but I can't see how the two can be considered similar. To start with, Victoria state only allows for assisted suicide. The safeguards are significantly more substantial. Just look at the size of their documentation, more than 120 pages compared to our mere 20. And if you look into how their law was crafted, doctors, specialists, disability advocates and lawyers sat around a table nutting out the finer details of how it would work, who would have access and how best to protect others. Our law didn't go through this process at all. Collaboration wasn't sought. Is that good enough? That's why it's important to get informed and understand the whole picture when considering your vote in the binding referendum. This episode concludes the seven-part series. I hope you found the discoveries helpful and thought-provoking Again, this is a very significant question we will answer when we go to vote. Please continue to get informed and make the best possible decision about the End of Life Choice Act. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it and tell a friend about it? Purchase a copy of The Final Choice book from your local bookstore or online at thefinalchoice.nz, where an ebook version is also available.